morning, church. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we praise you this morning for for making yourself known to us, and not simply as creator and God, but as our Father. We thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, and that having opened our eyes to him, Lord, you also opened our hearts, that we would love and embrace him as our Savior and our Lord that we would delight to call him friend and brother. Lord, we're grateful now to open your word and to have the spirit of Christ illumine our hearts that we might see truth, that we might look at the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and be emboldened in his gospel. We pray, Father, that that would happen, that you would help us as we study the scriptures that we would be moved to great boldness in Christ, that we would share the good news as He did in the face of belief and unbelief. Lord, we thank You for this opportunity, and we pray for Your help in it. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Our text this morning will be those first six verses. Last time we were together in Mark, we looked at a profile in belief in the last half of chapter 5. And so now, these first six verses in chapter 6, Mark gives us a profile in unbelief in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand together and we'll read these six verses before considering them together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. You may be seated. few years back in our home fellowship groups, we read a book entitled Honest Evangelism, and the author, Rico Tice, exhorts the reader to, to do what he refers to as crossing the pain line. What he means by that is to, to do the, the sometimes painful, sometimes fearful, sometimes awkward thing of sharing the gospel, to, to cross the pain line out of love for, for the lost people around us. That pain line 
exists because of, of, of no, numerous factors, not the least of which is that the cultural, culture around us is so loud regarding the acceptability of certain beliefs. For, for example, the prevailing thought is that belief in absolute truth is intolerant. So, to say that Jesus is the only way to God is, is ridiculous. And then we have, we have this, this wave of, of what's been called new atheism. It's, it's an aggressive atheism seeking to paint any kind of theistic belief as, as the height of irrationality, and not just irrationality, but irresponsibility. And so you, you not only have to check your brain at the door in order to believe in God, but you, you are a dangerous person if you believe in God. And we hear so much of this that it begins to mess with even our minds, convincing us that, that while we wholeheartedly believe in the good news, there must be some sense in which it is unbelievable. Some Christians can, can develop a kind of intellectual and emotional inferiority complex regarding the Christian worldview. We become embarrassed almost about what we believe, as if sharing the good news is tantamount to asking someone to buy magic beans. So functionally, we end up with very little confidence in the good news, very little confidence in owning publicly our belief in the good news, even less confidence in calling others to believe in the good news. And Mark has included a story here that should help us with that aspect of the pain line because this narrative flips, flips that script over. It depicts unbelief as a malfunction of reason. It depicts unbelief as dangerous. As, as Jesus preaches His good news... In an unwelcoming community, he's not at all un, he's not at all embarrassed. In fact, he he responds with incredulity to unbelief, and that's because he knows that that to believe in him is the most reasonable thing in the world. And we, as believers, should follow his cues, not the cues of the world. We should hold fast to the believability of the good news, and like Jesus, regard unbelief with incredulity. The skepticism of the world ought not cause us to be deterred in our mission, but like Jesus, we should be bold because we know what is true. Now, this narrative that Mark gives us here shows us a number of things about unbelief, characteristics of unbelief. And the first of those is that unbelief is prideful. Unbelief is prideful. Unbelief is, is, not, is not based upon a reasoned rejection of, of evidence. Rather, it's based upon a prideful rejection of Christ's lordship. So let's go back to the beginning of the passage. We'll look at verse 1 again. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Now, chapter 1 revealed to us that Jesus' hometown is Nazareth which was not a huge metropolis by any stretch. In fact, the, the population of Nazareth at the time was somewhere between 150 and 200 people, which would mean that Nazareth was about as big as PBF on a given Sunday between the two services. So Jesus knew everybody, and everybody knew Jesus. 
So now in his, his, his work, in, in, in his gospel work, he's going to his hometown where everybody knows him. And just as he did in every other place that he went on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue, begins to teach. And as is typical, people are astonished by what they hear. They're amazed by his teaching and, and his power. And, and look at what they're saying about him in the second half of verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Of course, we've come to expect these kinds of rhetorical questions. We saw them first as he taught in the synagogue in in Capernaum back in chapter 1, where they asked this question in Capernaum. They said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And then we heard the disciples asking in chapter 4, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? We hear these kinds of rhetorical questions in previous contexts in Mark. And, and, and just like there, here in Nazareth, these questions have a positive tone implying God is the source of what Jesus is doing. God is the source of his teaching and his miraculous power. So the people in Nazareth, they receive what Jesus is doing as from God. It clearly is. They recognize Jesus has this otherworldly authority. He has outrageous, miraculous power from God. In other words, they believe the obvious about Jesus. And yet, if we fast forward to the end of this narrative, we find Jesus marveling at their unbelief. So, what is it about them that the Scriptures would characterize them as unbelieving? Unbelief must be more than a denial of facts about about Jesus, because they agree that his teaching is is un is amazing. They agree that his his power is is marvelous. They're overwhelmed by these things. That's why they're asking these questions. Clearly, it's possible to acknowledge facts about Jesus and yet still be characterized by the Bible as unbelieving. So, what then is the crucial ingredient present here in Nazareth that makes it appropriate for the Bible to characterize these people as unbelieving? Well. As they continue to ask rhetorical questions, we can almost hear them talking themselves out of something. As as we've seen in other contexts here in Mark, folks asking these kinds of rhetorical questions about Jesus, each time the implicit and sometimes explicit intent is for us to conclude that Jesus is the Christ. For example, if we go back to that synagogue in Capernaum, they're asking these same kinds of questions about Jesus. What kind of teaching is this with authority? Well, in that same setting, as Jesus is giving that authoritative teaching, a demonized man cries out, I know who you are, the Son of the Most High. Then we fast forward to that scene where the disciples are saying of Jesus, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, just seven short verses later, again, a demon says to Jesus, You're the son of the most high God. So as we come to this passage in Nazareth and and we're following that pattern, we hear the Nazarenes, they are saying these same kinds of questions. Where did he get these things? Where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works that are done by his hands? We might expect following that same pattern then to hear somebody saying something like, this is clearly the son of God, but... As the people of Nazareth begin to talk, that pattern changes and they talk themselves out of that obvious conclusion. Look at verse 3. 
Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I've, I've been reading a book entitled God's Smuggler about a missionary who, who smuggled Bibles into Eastern Bloc countries during the Cold War. This missionary's name was Andrew, and he was the son of a blacksmith. And, and in the early days of his missionary training, his hometown in Holland, they were very supportive of him, and, and they gave even of, of what little money they had to support him through his, his training. Very generous people. Well, another family outside of his hometown felt moved that Andrew was going to need a car in his work as a missionary, smuggling these Bibles to the other side of the Iron Curtain. And so they gave him their almost new Volkswagen, which he was very reluctant to accept, but they insisted. So when Andrew had finished his missionary training, he was going to go to Yugoslavia for the first time, and yet he wanted to go to his hometown to say goodbye to his family and friends, but he was fearful about going into town with that car. He tried to slip into to town quietly, but in the years following World War II, cars were hard to come by, especially one that nice. And he writes this about that experience, quote, The entire village immediately gathered around wanting to know whose car it was, and as I had guessed would happen, not liking it when I told them it was my own. What was the son of a blacksmith doing with an automobile? Religion is a good business, eh, Andy, said one man. Everyone laughed, and although I told them again and again it was a gift, I could see they still didn't like it. The blacksmith's son shouldn't be driving a car. The families of the village had had often given me pennies from their grocery money, That money stopped now. My relationship with my hometown was never quite the same again. Sure, it's it's okay for somebody to have a car, but not someone below me. Someone of a lower class than me is not going to be elevated above me. Pride. Pride is behind the response to this missionary Andrew and his car, and pride is behind the response to Jesus and his extraordinary gifts. He's a carpenter. He's, just a, he's a blue-collar guy. And, and notice what, what the, the people of Nazareth say about Jesus. Whose, whose son is he? Unlike the voice from heaven in chapter 1, and unlike the voices even of demons in chapters 1 and chapter 5, the people of Nazareth do not call him the son of God, but he is merely the son of Mary, the carpenter, no carpenter, is going to be elevated above us. The ironic thing about Nazareth is that the word Nazareth means offshoot, as in offshoot of the stump of Jesse, like from from Isaiah 11 and 12. In other words, they had self-consciously named their town in expectation of the Messiah. It turns out the Messiah is from them. But they are not going to receive Him. Why? Pride. They are not going to have someone among them elevated above them. And Jesus notes that this is the case in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except 
in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So th- this, this had been the experience of those sent by God before Jesus. You, c- you can read about that in Jeremiah 11 and 12. The, the men of Anathoth, Jeremiah's hometown, they threatened to kill him for prophesying in the name of the Lord. Why is it that people, people treat God's messengers in this way, not honoring them? Because they don't honor God. When I, when I read these words from Jesus, quoting this, this, this parable, not parable, but, but a proverb, a prophet is not without honor. It makes me think of, of Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul writes this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The people of Nazareth knew who Jesus was. They just were not going to stand for Him to be elevated above them. Not going to call Him him Lord. Not going to honor Him. Not going to submit to Him. Not going to follow Him. He will not be above us. He is below us. Look at that last sentence of verse 3. Jump back to verse 3. And they took offense at Him. It could more literally be rendered, they stumbled over Him. Our our English translations, where where they say they they took offense at Him, underneath that is a Greek verb. It's the verb form of a noun that means stumbling block. They they stumbled over Him. And, And it might cause us to think of Isaiah 8, where the prophet prophesies about Jesus in Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, writing these words. And He, talking about Jesus, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. To some, Jesus is a sanctuary. They run to Him. They they see who He is, what He does, and they run to Him for safety from the wrath to come. They embrace Him as Lord. To others, though, He is a stumbling block. They stumble over the call to to follow Him as Lord. And by using this verb, Mark is indicating to us they're not merely offended, but rather they are stumbling so as to refuse to follow Him in faith. And and, and Mark here is getting at the the true nature of unbelief. Unbelief is not just a denial of facts about Jesus, but it is a refusal to declare Him Lord. The true atheist is a figment of the atheist's imagination. The true atheist is a figment of the atheist's imagination. Romans 1.21 again says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. A person who claims to be an atheist is someone who is working hard to convince themselves of something that they know is false. They know that there's a God. Why don't they want to believe that there's a God? Well, years ago I heard D. James Kennedy on, on the radio. Many of you are familiar with him. He's, he's now with the Lord in glory. Uh, a Presbyterian pastor, author, and uh, uh, apologist, evangelist. On his radio program, he was, he was sharing a conversation that he had had with an evolutionary biologist. 
And he said this man was world-renowned. He did not share his name, and you'll understand why in just a moment. He's having a conversation with a world-renowned evolutionary biologist. He said to this man, why are you so committed to evolution? And this biologist replied with uncanny honesty. He did, he did not say, well, the evidence is just so compelling. I have to believe in evolution. No, he did not say that. And I'm going to paraphrase what he did say to sanitize it for younger ears. But he said this essentially, evolution frees me to have relations with whomever I want. In, in other words, it wasn't the evidence that compelled him. He needed a way to get rid of God so that he could live as he pleased. And that's what's truly at the heart of unbelief. Unbelief unbelief can recognize that, yes, Jesus is who He says He is. Yes, He has done what He has said He has done. I just don't want Him. And the foundation of that disposition is pride. I want to be Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, there, there is nothing wrong with the content of the good news. It is not inherently unbelievable. It is not incredible. But hesitancy to believe the good news on the part of the unbeliever is due to the obstinance of their own hearts. What that means for you and me is that we ought not have some kind of inferiority complex regarding the good news as if we are holding out magic beans and hoping that someone will check their brain at the door and buy them. No. We are presenting what is true. And those who do not believe it do not believe because pride keeps them away. Now that leads us to a related characteristic of unbelief. Unbelief is not only prideful, but related to that, it is unreasonable. Unbelief is unreasonable in the sense that it is irrational. Look, look, look again with me at verse 4. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Now, we could take what Jesus says here, this, this proverb, in, in a couple of different ways. We could understand Jesus to be saying, look, this happens so often to prophets when they go to their hometowns that it's to be expected. This is what always happens when God sends someone to their own people. So it figures that they don't believe. We might take it that way, but another way to read this and most likely the better way to read it, what Jesus intends here is that a prophet is honored everywhere but at home. In other words, there's nothing wrong with the prophet. There's nothing wrong with the message. There is something wrong with the people in the hometown. The only place that this happens, the only place that unbelief takes place is where pride wins the day. In other words, the most reasonable response to the prophet is to honor him. Now, we could take it both ways. We could say, yeah, it is expected that many will be prevented by pride from following Christ in faith, but it is not reasonable to know everything about Christ, who he is, what he has done, and yet to reject him, that simply does not accord with reason. 
It is irrational. Think, think through this with me. Man was created to live in fellowship with God. Fellowship with God, that, that is the only atmosphere in which we can flourish. Man separated from God is like a fish out of water. There can only be misery, suffering, and malfunction. And horribly, this is exactly what man brought upon himself by rebelling against God in the very beginning. Adam did this for us on our behalf, and we followed him in it, not just in impulse, but in deed. And to, to grab that phrase from Romans chapter 1, in our feudal thinking, we began to think of separation from God as freedom. So, so in our natural state, we don't even want reconciliation with God. Even as we are miserable, suffering, malfunctioning, we don't want to be reconciled to God. On top of that, we know, Romans chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, verses 28 through 31, even though we know that the things that we do are worthy of damnation, we not only do those things, but we celebrate others who do those things. So, our sins separated us from God, causing every manifestation of temporal misery and doomed us to eternal wrath. That is a gargantuan problem. And we needed somebody to save us from all of that. We certainly couldn't do it ourselves, didn't even want to. Now, God promised to send just such a Savior in the person of His eternal Son who came to rescue man from sin and death by living a perfect life and dying an atoning death on the cross in the sinner's place. So Jesus Christ was raised from the dead three days later proving that His work in life and death was more than sufficient to reconcile sinners to God, giving them eternal life instead of e eternal wrath. So, here, here is the, the situation. We have this, this predicament of epic proportions, to say the least. And then we have a divinely devised tailor-made solution, the only one that will work to take care of that predicament in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save man from doom. What would reason have the sinner to do? Reason would move the sinner to say, whatever I need to do to have Christ in his life, I'll do that. The alternative is death here and now and death forevermore. And, and this is precisely what makes unbelief unreasonable. Even recognizing the truth of the good news, the unbeliever balks at what Jesus says in Mark 8.34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, in, in order to receive the gift of life offered by Jesus Christ, one must lay down his life and bow down to Christ as Lord. That is what people find so unpalatable. That is the stone over which people stumble. They don't want Christ on his terms. 
And in the passage there in Mark 8, Jesus tells us why this is so contrary to to reason, why it's irrational to, to decide to turn away from him, knowing what's true about him. Jesus says this, for whoever would save his life, that is, whoever would keep his life back from Jesus, whoever would save his life will lose it. That is, they will lose it eternally. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever gives his life to Christ, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That is, they'll have eternal life. And Jesus then asks this question in conclusion. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, this, this, this temporal world? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That is, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, saying, it is irrational to not follow me. To reject Jesus is to say, yeah, I, w- I want to keep all my sin and its misery. I want to know nothing of my creator except his wrath. I want no hope, want no joy, want no life. I am standing on the edge of the lake of fire and I'm choosing it over life in Christ. Very simple, similar to offering two cups to people. You're going to give them this cold cup of water or a cauldron full of molten lead. Which will you drink? There, there is, there is an obvious choice. Only the irrational choose one over the other. And while the phenomenon of unbelief may be something that we see all the time, that does not make it. Rational. That does not make it reasonable. Look at the first part of verse 6. How does Jesus respond to unbelief? It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now listen, Mark's gospel is full of astonishment. People are amazed over and over and over. But it's, it's always people being amazed at Jesus. In fact, we find 15 times in 16 chapters, Jesus does or says something that leaves people flabbergasted. This is the only time in Mark that Jesus is described as, as marveling or being astonished. The only time. And, and what is it that amazes Jesus? It isn't miracles. It is unbelief. Unbelief. No matter how common it may be, Jesus finds unbelief unbelievable. Knowing full well that proverb that he just that he just quoted to his his own people, knowing full well that pro- proverb about the prophet in his own hometown, unbelief even in his hometown causes him to marvel. Now, what 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 impact should that have upon us? That that Jesus regards unbelief in that way. I, I would give you two suggestions about how that should impact us. First of all, it should impact us in our thinking. I mean, there should be no more internal apologizing for the truth. No more inferiority complex about the, the Christian worldview. No more embarrassment about the good news. Jesus marveled that they didn't believe. It is crazy to not follow Christ. And so we ought not feel as if, not act as if we are nuts for following Jesus 
or even crazier for asking other people to follow him, following Jesus is the most reasonable course for the sinner. It is the most rational thing to do. Unbelief is unbelievable. We should bring our thinking on this matter in line with the mind of Christ. Now, be, be, be careful here and understand what I'm saying. I am not saying that we should be arrogant or off-putting in our presentation of the truth. We ought not be saying to people, look, you're a moron if you don't follow Jesus. No, we're, we're not going to act that way toward people. But in the way that we regard the gospel ourselves, we should find it amazing that anybody would not follow Christ. He does. The second way this should impact us is in our actual evangelism. We should boldly continue to share the truth in the aftermath of unbelief. That's what Jesus did. Look at at verse 6 again. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Think about how easy it is to derail us from the mission. How simple is it for the enemy to get us to shut up? I mean, for some of us, all it takes is the possibility of a no. Just the possibility of a no. Well, Jesus gets a big old fat no right here from, from, from all the people in his hometown, the people closest to him that, that are all like, no, we're not having any of this. Well, what does he do? I love that Mark puts these two sentences side by side in verse 6. He marveled at their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. Both of those sentences demonstrate absolute conviction that His good news is true. Jesus knows who He is. He knows. He's the only hope for the sinner. He knows that the most reasonable thing for the sinner to do is to follow Him. And that is why He marvels at their unbelief and it's why He continues to teach the truth. Why should we be any different? When we encounter unbelief for the first time, or the twelfth, or the hundredth, or the thousandth, we ought never... Take a different course mentally than Jesus did and think to ourselves, well, that figures. Might as well hang it up. No, we should never do that. Rather, we should be as convinced of the truth as Jesus is. We should see the beauty of the good news. Be astonished that anyone wouldn't surrender to Christ and move right on to the next divinely appointed opportunity to share it again and again and again. Jesus' astonishment and His continued preaching should fuel two things in us. First of all, a great boldness in the content of the good news. And secondly, great tenacity to keep sharing it no matter how often we are met with unbelief. We should think and act like Jesus. Unbelief is prideful. Unbelief is unreasonable. Finally, we should recognize that unbelief is devastating. It is devastating. Let's go back to verse 5 now. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people, and healed them. Now, if we were to sit here this morning and begin in Mark 1.1 and read the whole gospel up to this verse, we would find verse 5 here all the more striking. Because constantly, over and over thus far in Mark, Jesus has been doing things that leave people astonished. All He does is mighty works over and over. And yet here on this occasion, we find He could do no mighty work except a few smaller things. Now, it's widely accepted 
among interpreters that the reason Jesus was able to do no mighty work in Nazareth was because of their lack of faith. And I think that's true. Now, we noted last time that, that Jesus does not run on faith batteries. So, so faith is not inherently powerful. Jesus does what Jesus does because He is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also does not run on faith batteries. But rather, God has chosen to work where there is faith. Faith is the means that God has chosen through which to appropriate His divine power. So where there's faith, God chooses to work. Where there is none, He chooses not to work. So strictly speaking, absolutely, we should, we should embrace this verse. Jesus could do no mighty work there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit chose not to empower any mighty work there. Why did the Holy Spirit choose not to empower any mighty work there? Because of their lack of faith. This is why unbelief is so devastating. Unbelief says, I don't want Jesus... It's devastating because it gets exactly what it desires. Nothing of Jesus. Those of faith see everything that Christ is and acknowledging their need for Him, they put their lives and eternity in His hands. Saying, I need you. I want you. I must have you. Or I am ruined. That's that's the unbeliever. And faith gets what it desires. It It gets Christ and all that He is. Unbelief, which says, I want nothing of Christ, gets exactly what it desires. Nothing of Christ. That's why it's devastating. That there were a few people here in Nazareth. I'm sorry, that there were a few smaller works that Jesus did here in Nazareth indicates that there were a few who did believe, but the vast majority obviously did not, and so it was a unique stop in Jesus' ministry where there was very little in the way of the miraculous. And, and, and we might think perhaps of of the people of Nazareth. Well, those, those poor folks, they didn't get to see any of the fireworks, so to speak. They missed out on some of these amazing things that Jesus did. And, and, and we ought not think that in this situation. This is much, much more serious than just that they didn't see a leper cleansed or they didn't see a guy walk on water, perhaps. There's something much bigger going on here and there's something much bigger going on when someone that we share the good news with refuses to believe. It is not simply that those around us who do not believe are going to miss out on a show or they're going to merely miss the opportunity to be healed of leprosy or cancer. Rather, the devastation comes from the fact that they will remain in their trespasses and sins, separated from the Lord of glory forevermore, enduring the wrath of God for all time. It is no small thing when people throw away Jesus Christ. When they throw away Christ and all that He is, they throw away everything. And for, for that reason, th- th- those of us who are believers, when we grasp the, the devastation of unbelief, we should be all the more urgent and winsome in our appeal to unbelievers. And I would say to those of you this morning who may not have followed Christ in faith yet, you have heard the good news this morning. And you know who Jesus is and what He has done for sinners. You have heard that only those who repent and trust in Jesus, following Him in faith, surrendering their lives to Him, only they receive life and eternity with Him. 
you must understand how unreasonable it is to not follow him and how much your pride is going to cost you. It, and it, it is going to cost you not only in this life, but it's going to cost you for all eternity. And, and I beg you, do not find solace in the unbelief of the many outside these doors. Do not say to yourself, well, most people don't believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm among the majority. Listen, most people, most people are going to be devastated on the day of judgment. Do not be among them. You have heard the truth this morning. Do not do the irrational thing of turning away from Jesus Christ, throwing him away. It is irrational to hear what you've heard today and turn away. Now, saints, let us not listen to the skeptics, but let us listen to the scriptures as as we form our mindset about the good news. Let's echo Paul from Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. why, Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Well, he tells us right there in the same verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we ought be like Paul, who was like Jesus. That is bold, not arrogant, but lovingly bold, believing that this this good news that we share, it is true, and it is powerful to save. Unbelief, it's not rooted in an inherent unbelievability of the good news. It's founded on pride. And it is unreasonable and it is devastating. And those, those truths that, that unbelief is, is prideful, that it is unreasonable, that it is devastating, that should move us to action, bold, loving action. Should affect the way, not just the, not just the way that we think, but the way that we live. So as we, as we close this morning, I'm, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we'll observe a few moments of silence before the Lord. And I would encourage you to think to yourself, in what relationship or relationships has timidity or wrong thinking regarding the reasonability of unbelief prevented me from crossing the pain line? Where has my wrong thinking about the good news prevented me from crossing the pain line? Where have I... Where have I swallowed the thinking of the world about the good news in such a way that it has prevented me from doing the loving thing that Christ did, and that is sharing the good news? What would the Lord have you to do in those relationships? With Jesus, let us marvel that anyone would not believe, and let us spread the news, spread the news, spread the news. Let's pray. Father, we, we are well aware how loud the culture is regarding what we believe. We confess to you, Father, that we have been and are susceptible to their voices. Many of us do and should confess that we are guilty of giving more of our time and attention to the voice of the world than to your voice in the word as it pertains to these things. 
And that, Lord, is why we have become timid. That is why we have become embarrassed. That is why we have become unlike Jesus in our mission to tell His good news. We, we confess these things to You, Father. We ask You for forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, that You would give us minds and hearts drawn to Christ in the Scriptures. That the Scriptures would inform our thinking and inform our, our lives as it pertains to our mission. That we would be, that we would be so filled with with confidence in the truth that we, like Jesus, would find it marvelous that people would not follow Him in faith. And that we would be overwhelmed, saddened, and moved to urgency by the fact that, that the unbelief of the people around us is so devastating to them. Lord, grant us the boldness of Christ, the compassion of Christ, that we might... Engage in the mission of Christ. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.